Welcome to the Sword and the Trowel, a podcast of Founders Ministries. Founders Ministries exist for the recovery of the gospel and the reformation of local churches. I'm Jared Longshore. And I'm Tom Askell. Thanks for joining us on this podcast. I'm not sure what number it is. I think this is number nine. Number nine. I think. That's a streak. <laughs> it's a tradition now. It's a tradition. It's a thing. <clears throat> We've been talking about the statement on social justice and the gospel. Today, we want to talk about article number nine on heresy. So why don't I read it? All right. Let's talk about it. We affirm that heresy is a denial of or departure from a doctrine that is essential to the Christian faith. We further affirm that heresy often involves the replacement of key essential truths with variant concepts or the elevation of non-essentials to the status of essentials. To embrace heresy is to depart from the faith once delivered to the saints and thus to be on a path towards spiritual destruction. We affirm that the accusation of heresy should be reserved for those departures from Christian truth that destroy the weight-bearing doctrines of the redemptive core of Scripture. We affirm that accusations of heresy should be accompanied with clear evidence of such destructive beliefs. Yeah, this is an important statement because uh, of what it, it tries to set up the boundaries of our thinking about uh, the what the Scripture teaches about what it means to be right with God, how one becomes right with God. It's easy to throw the word heresy around and to label people heretics. And sadly, that's done with too uh, much ease in our day by some sectors of the evangelical world. And we don't want to be guilty of that. But neither do we want to stand by and allow those who are orthodox in their understanding, who are evangelical in their sense of devotion to Christ and the gospel, to be labeled as heretics because of sin that they have remaining in them. There's a difference between being heterodox and being heretical. And historically, that's an important point to make. And I think this uh, statement, this positive affirmation, uh, helps to give us some guideposts for those distinctions. Hmm. This article (laughs) seems important, giving the great division that's going on right now in society. We are a very divided nation, uh, divided over a number of topics. And so it's easy for the evangelical world to kind of keep in step and say, well, therefore, we're going to divide over these. If someone levels um, an accusation of heresy when uh, the other person, entity, whatever, has not uh, given, uh, it's not given to heresy, well, then you have a breakdown in the evangelical world. You have a breakdown in uh, the body of Christ that's proclaiming the message of salvation. So this is important to keep these boundaries clear. We're in a fight, and we want to make sure that we're fighting the enemy, that we're really fighting the bad guys, that we're not uh, allowing the other team to break us into uh, pieces so that we're not going to be able to uh, preach Christ to the world. Yeah, and to do that, we need to know where the boundaries are. Is Where does fraternal debate end and a defense of the gospel against its opponents start? I mean, that's the, that's the big question in my mind. So 
Uh, you're a Baptist, right? A Baptist. Yeah, one, of those separatists, one of those separatist <laughs> Puritans. You know, the difference between me and you is you're a Baptist with six kids, and you haven't baptized any of them. I'm a Baptist with six kids. I've baptized all of them. Oh, boy. What's wrong with you, Jerry? Oh, boy. Why are you so slow? Yeah. <laughs> it's a generational issue. So what about our pedo-Baptist um, friends? Are they heretics? No. Why not? Because they haven't denied any of the core weight-bearing redemptive structure of Scripture, like the statement says. <laughs> okay, what about our Mormon friends? Are they heretics? Yes. Why? Because they do. Okay, yeah, that's the difference. That's what we're trying to talk about here. And so in these issues that have uh, come up under this broad nebulous umbrella of social justice, there are many important matters that need to be discussed, and we don't want to suggest that they're unimportant, but we do want to suggest that in carrying out the discussions, even where we have to be very pointed and, and focused and intense in our debate, that where we are talking to people who agree on the essentials of the gospel, that we're not talking about heresy. We might be talking about uh, heterodoxy or unorthodoxy at certain points, but we need to treat those who name the name of Christ savingly as Christian, Christian brothers, Christian sisters. And we need to do that not only with those that we can look in the eye today, we need to do that with those on whose shoulders we stand and those who've gone before us, uh, many of whom had blind spots and who had uh, who've done things or didn't do things in ways that we would now judge to be contrary to the Word of God. So this sounds really good, but in practice, it gets a little murky, I think. We know that um, churches can become synagogues of Satan. Scripture says that. Yet, the day upon which they do so, sometimes that's hard to see. We have talked about in previous episodes, I've pointed out that some of the social justice efforts are actually efforts at other forms of justification. You're beginning to get near these uh, departures from Christian truth that destroy the weight-bearing doctrines of the redemptive core of Scripture. That's a mm -hmm. great sentence. But So maybe that we can move this conversation forward a little bit. Um, what are some of those Christian truths that are weight-bearing doctrines of the redemptive core of Scripture? Well, I would certainly say the deity of Christ, full humanity of Christ is incarnation, the Trinity, uh, Trinitarian nature of God, justification by grace alone, mm -hmm. through mm -hmm. faith alone, in Christ alone. We talked about, I think, in our last episode, uh, all of these elements are uh, at the center of knowing God and coming to be rightly related to Him in the only way that he's prescribed. And and people can come to know God savingly and have holes in their theology. I, I hope that's true because I know it is true of me. Mm -hmm. It's true of all of my theological heroes. And we need to grant that uh, grace to one another in acknowledging that. And a person can genuinely know Christ and have real uh, sin remaining within him that can manifest itself in very unhelpful ways and even in ungodly ways at times. Very good. The denial portion says, We deny that the charge of heresy can be legitimately brought against every failure to achieve perfect conformity to all that is implied in sincere faith in the gospel. 
again, that should seem self-evident, but in some of the debates that have raged under this uh, social justice concern, the charge of heresy has been thrown around uh, almost in a cavalier type of attitude toward those that we think it would be more accurately, uh, uh, more accurate to assess them in terms of sin that remains, blind spots, difficulties. Yes, indeed, uh, grievous sin that we don't want to overlook or pretend isn't real or serious, but should not relegate a person to the ash heap of heretic separated from Christ. Mm. May this article serve us well in the days to come. So today we're going to talk about By His Grace and For His Glory, a book by Dr. Thomas J. Nettles, subtitle, A Historical, Theological, and Practical Study of the Doctrines of Grace in Baptist Life. Are you telling me that Baptists are Calvinists? Uh, Tom Nettles is saying SBC? Yeah, I, I'm just reading the book. Yeah, SBC? I'm, Southern Baptists, yeah. That, the cradle in which the Southern Baptist Convention was rocked was five-point Calvinism. Whoa. Wow. It's true. You're going to make some people upset. Well, this will be a first for me if that happens. Hey, you could be wrong. <laughs> I could be wrong. <laughs> yeah, this is a great book. It came out in 1986, and it's, there's an interesting story behind it. Uh, it actually found uh, it was difficult to find a publisher for it originally. Hmm. But Baker uh, did agree to publish it. There was an agreement made with some folks to buy some off the press. And so Tom uh, worked on this book a long time, and the, the subtitle gives you the outline of the book. It's based on, uh, he has a historical section in which he just traces the roots of Baptist history, uh, largely dealing with biographical and episodic type of um, uh, approaches to Baptist history, looking at those distinctives that made them Baptist. And then he has a theological section in which he looks pretty pointedly at the so-called doctrines of grace or the five points of Calvinism, and he uses the Baptist uh, writings of the past to illustrate this and to argue the point. And then the so what section, the practical implications of this, what difference does this make in the life of a Christian and in the life of the church. And those uh, last three chapters that are practical are rather hortatory in nature. So he gives uh, some implications, applications, exhortations to the readers, everything from dealing with your own conscience and matters of assurance, as well as uh, evangelism and missions. This book has stood the test of time. Originally published in 1986 by Baker, and then Founders Ministries took it over, and Founders Press published it in 2006 on its 20th anniversary. It has uh, now been around 32 years, and this book has not been refuted. Mm. There was a feeble attempt made uh, by one uh, professor at a Bible college, but it, it didn't rise to the level of even dealing with it in any kind of uh, uh, serious engagement. There have been a couple of folks that have uh, tried to talk about it in a broadcast and uh, offer some refutations, but again, uh, nothing has been done in a scholarly way to refute the findings and arguments of this book. Dr. Nettles is a force to be reckoned with. He's a longtime friend of yours, right? He is. He was my first professor at Southwestern Seminary. I got to meet him before I enrolled, actually. He helped me greatly when I was a student at Texas A&M, and um, he 
became a friend and has been a mentor, and I'm delighted to know him. He was also your major professor at Southern, right? Mm-hmm, he I, was. I think you have the distinction of being his last Ph.D. student. Is that correct? I'm either the last or maybe the second to last. Okay. I might have skirted in past another guy. Okay. I can't quite remember that. But uh, Nettles is a board member at Founders. Yes. And the goal of this book is not only to show the uh, historical, theological uh, roots of the doctrines of grace in Baptist life, but uh, we would present this as something to be modeled today. Are, Are you trying to reform the Southern Baptist Convention? No, I'm not. I'm trying to see the gospel that is revealed in Scripture brought into clear light and defended, and to see local churches be more and more conformed to what the New Testament tells us. Local church. You're not trying to reform the Southern Baptist Convention? I am not trying to reform the Southern Baptist Convention. we got to talk about this because I'm trying to reform the Southern Baptist Convention. (laughs) No wonder we feel like we're at odds. Oh, I see. (laughs) Founders Ministries for the recovery of the gospel and the reformation of local churches. Uh, Okay, but if we do that, SBC, you're going to have a whole bunch of reformed local churches. Well, that's happening. But that's the, the goal is not to Calvinize the Southern Baptist Convention. It's not mine, anyway. I just want to Calvinize the churches. <laughs> I want and to see then, churches made healthy. Oh, okay. So let me just give you a couple of quotes of people. Timothy George, you know, who's the soon-to-be-retired, if not already retired, dean of Beeson Divinity School, the founding dean there, says, This is simply the best book there is on the subject at hand. Mark Dever, pastor at Capitol Hill Baptist Church, says that this book is a landmark study. This this is a book that every Baptist ought to have in his, his or her library. Every Baptist pastor certainly should read this book. You can find it at founders.org in the Founders Press uh, uh, for sale section. Go get it fast, quick. And in a hurry. So we've been talking about the Ten Commandments. Today we come to the Tenth Commandment. Tom, do you have that one in front of you? Can you tell us what the Tenth Uh, Commandment is? Yeah, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not covet his manservant or his maidservant or his ox or his donkey nor anything that is your neighbor's. Don't covet. Don't covet. You know, this is the commandment that is crucial to understand in order to see what's going on in the other nine commandments. Mm -hmm. This is the commandment that actually got the Apostle Paul. Paul tells us a little bit of this in his uh, autobiographical section in Romans chapter 7 when he gives us insight into how the gospel worked in conjunction with the law in his own life. In, In Romans 7, 7, he says, I would not have known what sin was, if it weren't for the commandment, if it weren't for the law. So I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. Now, I just can imagine Paul sitting there as a Pharisee and recounting the commandments of God, going over the Ten Commandments, rehearsing them in his mind, saying, you have no other God before me. I'm Check, I've done that. You know, Don't uh, take the name of the Lord, your God in vain. You know, check, done that. You know, all, all the commandments, just going down the commandments. Haven't done that. I'm good here, good here, good here, good here, till he gets to number 10. Mm. Don't covet. And it, it's like the Spirit of God came to him and just opened his eyes. And as he puts it in Romans 7, the, the sin revived and I died. So it's like 
I finally saw myself as a sinner. I thought I was good. I thought I was keeping all these commandments. So this 10th commandment came to me in the power of the Spirit, its strictness, its spirituality. And I realized coveting is not something you, you do or don't do with your hands or with your feet. It's something you do in your heart. And Paul no longer had a defense. And spiritually, he realized he was a dead man. This commandment shows us that all the commandments have always intended by God to be seen as going to the heart. Going to the heart. And these commandments are good. One of the things I hope that comes out as we've been talking about them is the goodness of God's commandments. Mm -hmm. It's easy for us to think, well, these commandments are, you know, these are rules that I have to follow and... Uh, we start to think they're burdensome, but we know they're not burdensome. Christ tells us that they're not burdensome. And who really wants to be some self-centered, covetous person? You yeah. know, what I mean, yeah. that's a that is a that's a dark hole to go in. You don't want to be stuck there. You know, you want to be content with what you have. This is a, a wonderful way to live. The uh, Westminster Longer Catechism says that one of the one of the fruits of this is a charitable frame of the whole soul toward our neighbor. That's what you want. You're starting to see somebody else get something. They get a vacation. They get a raise. They get a promotion. They get a book deal, whatever it is. And you can rejoice in it. Say, boy, I'm so thankful that um, God is blessing this person in this way. Not thinking, oh boy, look at me. Woe is me. I don't have this. Yeah. You know, when Paul tells us that we're to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice, um, I think oftentimes I found it easier to weep with those who weep than to rejoice with those who rejoice Mm. because of the covetousness inside of me. You see someone uh, being blessed. You see someone uh, attaining things, receiving things, and there can just be that tinge then you, mm. you know, I don't have that and I want that. Well, what's going on there? It's covetousness. Mm. And if I can see it as sin and realize that my attitude that somehow inhibits me from rejoicing with those rejoice stems from the sin that remains within me, that helps me to fight. That helps me to put it to death. And as it's put to death, then yeah, man, you can be really glad for people who enjoy blessings that you know, are not put in your hand right now. And if you, they're never in your hand, you, you don't have to uh, go around living a, a sense of defeated, uh, with a defeated mindset because you've learned to be content. Mm. That, that rare jewel of Christian contentment, as Jeremiah Burroughs puts it in his book. One of the really bad ideas is that um, I will find myself more content, I will find myself not coveting, as soon as I get just a little bit more, <laughs> so yeah, I really want I really want my my neighbor's house, and as soon as I get one as big as him, then I won't have this problem. But the problem is, it doesn't matter how much you get, you can still be covetous. Absolutely, and that means that no matter how little we have, we can find contentment and not covet, not break the tenth commandment, but be grateful for it. I think gratitude is the antidote to this is the is the flip side of the coin i want to cultivate gratitude in myself in my family by pointing to the ridiculous abundance of gifts that we have from god just air to breathe a sun that shines rain that falls 
trees that are nice to look at, birds that fly around and sing to us in the morning, clothes to put on, a house to live in, food to eat. It's like every single day we're receiving so many blessings from God. And we just highlight those, put them out there in front of us, take time to think about them and to thank God, sing a song to them. Boy, I find it's hard for covetousness to grow in that kind of spirit. Yeah, all of that, and we're not in hell. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we're not in hell. Yes. And and it's because of Christ. I mean, if we have Christ, this is the antidote. If we have Christ, then all those things that you're talking about, we can see as amazing gifts that our Lord and Savior purchased for us. And how in the world can we complain? Mm. How in the world can we be anything other than grateful? I love it. As we sign off today, we'll let people know, since you brought this up, this is how we often talk to each other, right? I'll walk in, you say, how you doing? I say, I am raised up with Christ and seated in the <laughs> heavenly places. And you say, and you're not in hell. <laughs> and because of that, we have reasons to be full of joy. Amen. You have been listening to the Sword and the Trowel podcast with Jared Longshore and Tom Askell. This podcast is produced by Founders Ministries. For more information, visit www.founders.org. To hear more from the Sword and the Trowel, you can follow Founders on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or by subscribing to our email list at www.founders.org. Thank you.